Welcome to Subscribing to Wellness, the show where Rachel Newman and myself, Daniel Fairman, sit down with leading founders, executives, and investors committed to building a healthier future for consumers. Today on Subscribing to Wellness, we are joined by Nathan Cooper, founder of Barrel Ventures. Barrel VC is a seed stage VC fund based in the heart of the Midwest. Barrel leverages decades of experience of operating, scaling, and investing in companies to help early stage entrepreneurs propel their ideas forward. Barrel's focus is on food and beverage, food tech, consumer, retail tech, D2C infrastructure, and supply chain. Prior to Barrel, Nate founded Wise Apple and L3 Hospitality Group. Nate, welcome to Subscribing to Wellness. How are you, man? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. It's awesome to have you on. Rachel and I love what you've been doing at Barrel and what you've been building. Would love to hear about your background and how you kind of came into this consumer venture capital world. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I grew up in a family of operators in and around food and was one myself. And then came to the conclusion that if I spent another day in food, I was going to have a nervous breakdown and decided to go back to business school at Kellogg. And of course, before starting business school and while in business school, started another food company, which is called Wise Apple. Venture backed, grew really quickly. We ended up getting uh, screwed over by a strategic at the 11th hour story for another time post B school and launched Barrel shortly after that. You're referencing pain points within food that you were facing that, that made you kind of tired of it. What were some of those pain points that, that, you, re- that you recall? Uh, so I was in the restaurant world and restaurants and hospitality and service is a, it's a very mentally exhausting world. And I uh, highly respect anyone who has worked or works in it. You know, the challenge with restaurants specifically versus consumer brands or tech businesses is that, you know, every day you're essentially starting from zero, right? And, you know, there's no recurring revenue. There's no, yeah. you know, you certainly have a brand aura and things like that, but every day you're starting and it's just a very mentally exhausting business. That was an incredible learning experience, but not something that I wanted to do for the rest of my career, I realized. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting the way you put that. It's like a fresh PL every day, right? Or every hour, right? Every every dinner setting is like for a restaurant, a fresh performance PL. Yeah. Um, and it's obsessed um, over so many little things every single day of operation, right? Exactly. So yeah. easy to, you know, ruin a reputation in that world, you know, versus you make a product or you sell a product and you have this consistent brand experience, right? And a chef or a cook or a waiter has one bad experience in a day, Mm -hmm. right? And someone who's been a customer for 10 years at a restaurant has one bad experience and it might change their view of that restaurant for the rest of their life. Yeah, there's those are really unique comparisons. I've actually never thought about it that way. In what ways do you think kind of the barriers to starting a food or restaurant business have changed over time from kind of your transition as an operator to an investor? For the better, I guess, for the worse, mostly for the better, in my opinion. But is it much tougher and challenging to win today in food? Or is it easier to get into it, but harder to win in the long term? How do you think through it? So I think this is a uh, cliche answer. It is easier than ever to start a business right now. I think with all the different platforms, with all the commands, you know, seeing all the businesses that have done it before, but it's harder than ever to differentiate yourself, right? You know, there are... I see you know, thousands of companies a year of new businesses that are starting you know, every single day 
throughout the entire value chain of food and beverage and supply chain and, and consumer brands. You know, it's amazing how fast these businesses can grow, right? The ability for businesses to create, you know, real enterprise, serious enterprise value businesses in a span of two, three, four, five years that used to take, you know, decades, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. But at the same time, the proliferation of these businesses makes standing out that much harder. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And exactly you know, what I was you go back in, you know, a decade ago or 15 years ago and you look at, you know, carbonated soft drinks, right? Nobody would have gone, you know, to challenge Coke or Pepsi or Dr. Pepper, right? Right. And, you know, when Olipop launched three, four years ago, everyone thought they were crazy, right? And now there's, you know, 20 different, you know, upstarts in the soda category. Yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. I also just think to to a conversation we were having earlier, it's just software, right? Enabling the the incubation of these businesses to become a reality much quicker with greater sophistication and accuracy and predictability with consumer behaviors and data. And so I I mean imagine like a world without Shopify, right? Like that was I don't even know. I was I feel like this is like past my time. I don't even know what people did when Shopify I can't even remember like what you would do if Shopify didn't exist. You'd have to like where there I don't even know. I couldn't tell you. But it's you know, we live in a world today where everything's sort of at our fingertips, yeah. right? Imagine a world without Uber. Imagine a world without Shopify. Imagine a world yeah. without, you know, Grubhub. And 20 years ago, none of that shit existed. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So just to switch over to kind of your investor side, could you talk a little bit more about the inception of Barrel and kind of what you're doing? Yeah, so we launched Barrel four years ago, sort of a as an extension of the family's expertise. So the family's got a long history in food and beverage and supply chain. And we said, look, we know the industries of food tech, supply chain, commerce infrastructure, broader consumer. And we see a ton of deals within the space. And it makes more sense for us to do this on our own than to go pay someone to do it for us. And so launched Barrel three and a half, four years ago. You know, we were fortunate to invest in some great companies like Olipop and Clove and Pod Foods and Partake as well as Grabango and Jumbotail and House, we've been really fortunate over the past four years to back a bunch of people who are a lot smarter than us. Yeah. Could you talk a little more maybe about the portfolio itself? What I find unique compared to some other consumer funds, you know, some consumer funds are extremely focused on straight branded products across food, bev, personal care, et cetera. Others are more tech-enabled, tech-focused, tech-enabling commerce and consumer brands, food tech or ag tech. If you think about more firms leaning into like alt-protein, like a Blue Horizon or an S2G or Cultivate, you know, Cultivian Sandbox. Could you talk a little bit about how you think through the entire ecosystem and why it's important to you to not kind of restrict yourself maybe to one jurisdiction within the consumer space? Yeah. So when you look at our, you know, the family history, for myself and my father and you know, the rest of them, we sort of span the entire value chain from supply chain, food processing, packaging, all the way to you know brand and consumer products. And so we said, look, we want to invest in, in things people buy and the technologies and materials and stuff in the way they buy them. And so, you know, when you look at our portfolio, we've got everything from you know, consumer brands like Olipop and Partake and Gem and things like that to distribution companies, right? Like Pod Foods uh, or Jumbo Tail to, you know, retail technologies like Grabango. And, you know, we've been able to leverage the relationships that we have throughout this entire industry and throughout the entire value chain to provide value throughout this entire value chain to our portfolio companies. And I think, 
being able to do that really gives us a unique insight because, you know, rather than being solely focused on, you know, the end product of just end brands, you know, within CPG food and beverage or personal care or solely focused on, you know, the supply chain of it, having investments throughout the entire value chain allows us to make connections between our portfolio companies in really innovative ways that I think not a lot of of other funds or investors have the ability to do. Yep. And just going deeper there, I mean, we could talk about branded products. We've talked about branded products nonstop on this show, just based off of the guests that, that we've that we've had historically. We had Olipop to to kind of tie it to your portfolio. We're having partake in a few weeks. What are you seeing as some of the biggest bottlenecks outside of branded products, but kind of within the value chain of consumer, whether that's supply or whether it's customer acquisition marketing? that you're kind of super focused on and digging in on at this moment? I think there's a few areas that are really exciting. I think anything that helps companies acquire customers cheaper, faster, more efficiently, or leverage and able to understand their customer lifecycle better. Uh, so companies you know, that are interested in that where that area are you know, soon up, right? I think we are at a tipping point with regards to packaging and the future of packaging and pollution. When you look at packaging as a whole, you're talking about a trillion dollar plus industry that is literally killing our planet. If you look at you know any massive Fortune 500 company that produces goods and read their annual reports, they all have sections devoted to hey our goals by 2025, you know carbon footprint, packaging, etc. And none of them are going to reach them. And I think there are going to be massive fortunes made in packaging over the next decade and the future of packaging, whether it is from incumbents or startups, or a combination, it's one of the areas that we are really excited about and really focused on. Yeah, I think the packaging angle is super interesting. And I think, to your point, strategics, right, are making these pretty bold claims about sustainability goals. There's a lot of efforts here at Stanford going into like developing a way to really measure, right, like sustainability improvements with accuracy, because think for a while, companies were just generally making these big claims, then having trouble actually quantifying the steps they were taking, the improvements they were making in terms of reducing GHG and water usage and waste reduction. But also in like kind of the packaging playground, I've seen some amazing companies. I, I was talking to an entrepreneur out of Florida who started a company called Nobo, and he sent me some samples where essentially I was putting a slip of soap kind of in my hand, washing my hands, and it was dissolving. And then I use the shampoo pod and the shampoo pod dissolves in my hair. So there's just no, there's actually no, there's no packaging. It's biodegradable packaging, which is pretty incredible. I know SWAT Equity has a nice company portfolio doing something somewhat similar. There's, there's Nobo, there's Plus. Yeah, there's Plus. Some really right. interesting stuff going on yeah. within the future personal care and packaging. You know, the, I wouldn't say hurdle or hesitation. You know, the thing that I am careful with when looking at that space is, with regards to future packaging and changing behaviors, right, there's always a friction point of how severe is the behavior change that you're asking consumers or brands. And whether it is around personal care or hygiene or outer packaging or inner packaging, right, whether it's food and beverage, there are a lot of friction points. And so, you know, while I say we're at a tipping point for packaging and the future of packaging in our planet, I think it's not going to come all at once, right? I think especially in the U.S., most companies really only care relevant to how it affects their bottom line, unfortunately, right? And so great if you have a 
you know, disposable X, Y, or Z to replace, you know, the pollutant. But if it's at a hundred percent price premium, no one's ever going to buy it. Right. So it has to be functional. It has to behave and perform in the similar ways that whatever it's replacing. And it also has to be economical, right? There have been solutions around to replace whatever type of packaging we're talking about for years, but the hiccups and the friction are often in the performance and the price point, right? And I think if you can replicate the performance within a price point that companies are okay paying, and I think they're okay paying, you know, a five to 15% premium, depending on where, you know, where within the value chain this is, then I think you're going to see some really exciting companies launch. Yeah. Yeah. Those are amazing points. I think I always ask myself, even if we're doing something that's amazing for the environment and obviously needed for kind of the future based off where our planet is going. I always go back to, am I solving a mass consumer need, right? That consumers really want to buy into in terms of behavioral change. And obviously like we get excited about the Gen Z population who like, will legitimately like shown through surveys will pay a premium, right? If they feel that a brand is committing to a sustainability initiative through their call to action through their through their packaging and, and product. But I have similar thoughts like, are we early to are we too early to invest in this trend? And then the consumer adoption is going to take too long to kind of manifest itself at scale. Or some of these, you know, company the best companies are kind of creating a product that doesn't, that both is great for the environment, but also doesn't require a mass kind of shift in behavior in order to adopt kind of the everyday behavior. So I think the, the other thing that we really, sorry to interrupt you, I, I I'd lose my thought process if I didn't say this. The other thing that we really need to consider is you know, behavior change, right? Is in the, the pain point that you're addressing for consumers, right? Yeah. How likely are consumers to change, drastically change their hygiene routines to adopt no bow or plus? And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Right? But like, I think the root of what I'm getting to is, is there a benchmark that like a level of familiarity that they can root this in? Yeah. And I think that's applicable to consumer brands as a whole. Right. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that Olipop has been so successful and sort of run away with that category is when you look at their flavors and the brand and the nostalgia, right. They're soda. They're just yeah. happy. That also just happens to be good for you. Right. They're not calling themselves some crazy, Sparkling, right. adaptogenic, whatever Easy they are, soda, right? They're adoption. calling it a cola. They're calling it a root beer. They're calling it, yeah. you know, a whatever, and it tastes like soda, right? And yeah. they're rooting themselves in familiar flavors. And I think that's been, you know, in addition to the incredible team and brand and product that they have, it's one of the main reasons they've been so successful the past few years. Yeah, I think to summarize that, it's like functional benefit emotional benefit from the way they built the brand and then ease of conversion and behavior change because it's not that far-fetched in terms of like the way it's positioned compared to conventional soda. Awesome conversation. Transitioning to like kind of our last part of the podcast, we do a little rapid fire. So we're just going to do three or four questions to get to know the real Nate, the legend, uh, a little bit better outside of his investor mode. Best part about Chicago. The greenness, being able to, you know, get outside the six months a year that it's nice. There you go. Favorite consumer product you've ever tried? That's a that's like asking me which my favorite. What's my favorite kid? <laughs> um, 
Favorite consumer product that I've ever tried. What's yours? Maybe that'll inspire me. You know what? I love super coffee and it's, and, it, and I'm going to say, I know it, it might be a hot take for some people. I just, I think it's great. I love the function. I've just been on subscription and writing that one for, for quite a long time. Cause I really like am picky. Obviously like you and I, we see so much. And like, if we started subscribing to every single like consumer brand that we ever tried that we liked, we would be blown through our bank accounts no matter what. So that's been one that I've like subscribed to. I love Verb Energy. I've been a subscriber for a really long time. And given that I have those two on like subscription, I have to probably like admit that those are the two that I'm most reliant on that I like. I like uh, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to cop out and say a couple. My sister-in-law's banana bread company. Uh, it's called Go Nanas. It's incredible. Her and her... Uh, college roommate. I've just launched an awesome company over the past few years. This might get me in trouble a little bit, but I am a sucker for shamrock shakes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's this sure. incredible product from a marketing branding perspective. You know, it's the limited time offering that people just get excited about around a season. Yeah. And I try to get at least one a year. Sometimes I get more, sometimes I, I don't. And then, you know, I, I love every one of the products within our portfolio. Yeah, Olipop is great. Uh, Partake is an amazing liquid. I'll, I'll give you a funny one. I love Skippy peanut butter. I still. So good. You want to know the weirdest thing? I love reduced fat smooth. I actually prefer the taste of the reduced fat to the full sugar one. I don't know why. It's like no one likes the the like healthier one, but I actually really like the reduced fat Skippy peanut butter. I have it on everything. I'm a crunchy guy. I don't dunk a real I like crunchy yes. too. I like them all, but yeah. I mean, it's just great. It's still a great product. Last question. Favorite place that you've ever traveled to? My wife and I went to uh, Kenya, Uganda for our honeymoon, which was incredible. We saw the gorillas and it was one of those experiences that kind of changes you and you'll only do once in your life. And it was just mind blowing. That's awesome. I want to get over there. I'm planning my honeymoon right now, but a little bit different. Congratulations. Where are you going? Thank you. Yeah. We're thinking Bora Bora because we're out on the West Coast. Take advantage of kind of having the flight and range. And then maybe when we move over to the East Coast, we'll do more of that kind of Africa or Europe kind of thing. It was um, a long couple of flights. Oh yeah. 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 Getting out to like Southeast Asia, if you're, it can be a nightmare. Awesome, Nate. Really enjoyed the conversation. Where can our listeners learn a little bit more about Barrel? Barrelvc.com is our website. And if you want to talk to me, reach out, Twitter, email, phone. I'm open to have that conversation with anyone at any time. Awesome. Thanks again for joining. Cheers. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. Feel free to rate, review, and share the podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to Wellness. If you'd like to sponsor us, please see the supporter link in our podcast bio. We hope everyone has a great rest of week filled with wellness, and we'll see you next time.